Hello, and thank you for tuning into Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, your host, and the clinical microbiologist and the chair of the Division of Clinical Microbiology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. For today's episode, we welcome Charanjit Singh from our product management team at Mayo Clinic Laboratories for a test-specific podcast. Thanks for the introduction, Dr. Pritt. Today, we'll be discussing our test EOIBD, Early Onset Monogenic Inflammatory Bowel Disease Gene Panel, with Dr. Ann Moyer. Dr. Moyer, before we begin, could you please tell us the audience a little bit about your background? Yeah, JR. My name is Ann Moyer. I'm a molecular genetic pathologist at Mayo Clinic. I completed all of my residency training in both anatomic and clinical pathology at Mayo Clinic, along with a fellowship training in molecular genetic pathology. I've been in practice for almost eight years now, and I specialize in hereditary disorders, including inborn errors of immunity and immune dysregulation disorders, as well as complement genetics, renal genetics, and pharmacogenomics. Thank you so much for the information, Dr. Moyer. The first question I have is, could you please do a brief overview of our UIBD test? This test is designed to aid in the diagnosis of patients with early onset inflammatory bowel disease. So what's interesting about early onset inflammatory bowel disease is as a whole, IBD has been rapidly increasing in both children and in adults, but more and more patients are presenting at a very young age. And the majority of IBD or inflammatory bowel disease is thought to be multifactorial or what we would call polygenic, but it tends to be a very complex uh, dis genetic disorder with contribution from probably over 200 genes. And in those polygenic cases, often an environmental trigger is thought to interact and lead to disease in susceptible individuals. Now, this is a little bit different. Some patients will have a different form of IBD or IBD-like intestinal inflammation that can be due to disease-causing variants in just one gene. And so in this case, often the gene is something that's immune-related, but there are also potential genetic causes beyond disorders of immunodeficiency and dysregulation, such as those causing epithelial barrier defects or congenital diarrhea syndromes. Our panel includes 107 genes identified through literature review. We included immune-related genes as well as those in the differential diagnosis. And we chose to, at this point in time, exclude polygenic risk loci for a variety of reasons. So this panel is actually a genetic sequencing panel, and we use several techniques to ensure that we're covering each of the genes of interest. And at the end, the report includes the variant or variants that were detected, as well as a description of the gene and the evidence that resulted in the variant classification. But what I think is especially neat is we've got a whole team of individuals that work together to deliver these results to our patients. And our specialized team includes laboratory technologists, genetic counselors, and laboratory directors who all work together to generate the results and interpret the results for each patient tested. Great. Thank you so much for that. That was great information and great to hear that our gene encompasses 107 genes. You mentioned this in the, in the previous question, but which patient should have this testing and when should it be performed? So in general, we really think that patients who develop features of inflammatory bowel disease at a very young age should be the ones that you're really strongly considering testing. The patients can present with a variety of symptoms, including gastrointestinal symptoms. So some of these could include bloody or mucus-containing diarrhea, failure to thrive, perianal skin tags or fistulas, 
but they also can have more systemic symptoms. So those could include things like intermittent fevers, frequent infections, folliculitis, other skin rashes, arthritis or arthralgias, or a variety of other symptoms. So if you do come across a patient who has recurrent infections or has infection with an unusual microbe, those would be especially good candidates for this test. And so although we usually think about this testing in the setting of very early onset IBD, so what I'm talking about there is usually before the age of six, or especially before two years of age, those patients that are presenting with IBD-like features, some patients might actually present at a later age. So as such, if a patient has extraintestinal features or their history suggests the possibility of an underlying immunodeficiency disorder, it may be worthwhile to pursue testing despite the later age of onset. And in addition, patients with these disorders are more likely to have a form of IBD that would be what we'd call unclassified rather than a classic Crohn or ulcerative colitis picture. And some literature suggests that a more severe disease course or a lack of response to typical therapies may be observed as well. So those might also be considerations that would lead you towards doing this testing. And finally, although the polygenic forms of IBD, they tend to have a familial component where you'll see multiple family members that may have disease, but patients who have a stronger than usual family history are also people that may benefit from this test because, again, we're really looking for monogenic forms of IBD with this test or IBD-like disorders as well. Great answer. And I think our practicing clinicians will appreciate that. And I just want to have a follow-up question on that, Dr. Moyer. How are results used in patient care? So in patient care, the testing can be helpful to not only establish the diagnosis, but it can be used for guiding therapy for these patients as well. So many patients with IBD will be treated with aminosalicylic acids or thiopurines or methotrexate or anti-TNF antibodies or a variety of different medications or combinations thereof. But the patients that have a monogenic form of IBD may be better treated with something different or there may be a more targeted therapy available. So for example, anakinra, which is a IL-1 receptor antagonist, could be used in patients with IL-10 signaling defects, and particularly while they're awaiting a hematopoietic stem cell transplant. And normally when you're thinking about inflammatory bowel disease, stem cell transplants are not the thing that's at the forefront of your mind, but it's important to know that they can be curative for some forms of very early onset IBD that actually are due to immunodeficiency disorders. And so while it's something you wouldn't normally be thinking about, that's why it's so incredibly important to test these patients, because if you do identify one of those disorders, it would drastically change management. So just in general, the results in clinical care, they'll really depend on what specific findings there are of the test or which specific gene might have a pathogenic variant, but definitely they can be game changers for these patients and very impactful. For the last question, I want to pivot to a different area. What alternative test options are available and how do these compare to our test? Well, that's a fantastic question. So I mentioned a minute ago, this test is a genetic test that includes 107 genes. So considering that this field is moving fairly quickly and additional genes are being identified that can result in forms of monogenic IBD, another potential option to consider, I guess options, would be exome sequencing or genome sequencing. So if you performed a literature search this morning and there was an additional gene described that was associated with IBD in a new publication, we probably didn't have a chance to include it on our 107 gene panel yet. So therefore, you would think, well, exome or genome sequencing, you should be able to detect variants in that particular gene. 
And so I think one thing though that's important to note is that you might expect that if you performed an exome or a genome test, you'd be testing all of the genes in the exome or genome. But what a lot of people don't realize is that some genes are just really difficult to test by next generation sequencing. And some examples would be genes that have a really high degree of homology or similarity with a pseudogene. Or there are other genes that just for whatever technical reasons may end up with lower than expected coverage on an exome or a genome. So therefore, it'd be really difficult to detect variants in it when you're not really sequencing it to as great of an extent as the other genes. So we get around this with a panel test because while we're designing it, we evaluated each gene so that we could determine its performance by next generation sequencing. And for the genes that are problematic, the panel test is designed with what we call supplemental analysis, and that fills in those gaps. So although an exome or a genome could potentially catch an emerging gene, it might miss known disease-causing genes due to technical challenges or due to these pseudogenes because these larger exome and genome tests really aren't tailored specifically for IBD. But there are a couple of other options that I think are worth mentioning too. So functional testing is something that's often performed in the setting of immunodeficiency disorders. And at Mayo Clinic, we have the Cellular and Molecular Immunology Laboratory that can perform functional testing for immunologic disorders. So the thing that's interesting though, is that a number of the genes that are associated with early onset IBD actually don't have a corresponding functional test. So that's a little bit of a challenge. But historically speaking, in the immunology space, sometimes the functional test was performed first, and then you'd follow it up with genetic testing. And now often these tests can be performed concurrently, or the genetic test can be performed first, followed up by functional testing. So there's one disorder in particular that I really wanted to mention when you're thinking about alternative tests. So that's chronic granulomatous disease. And this particular disorder can be autosomal dominant or it can be autosomal recessive, and one gene, NCF1, is particularly challenging to test by next-generation sequencing because it has two pseudogenes. Now, only about 25% of cases of CGD are due to variants in NCF1, but within NCF1, there's a very specific founder variant that uh, is often not included in genetic tests, and that's the most common variant that would be uh, resulting in CGD. So, even the genetic tests that claim to include NCF1, they may not be including this particular variant. So at present, NCF1 is not included on our panel while the other genes associated with CGD are. So we would recommend the dihydrorhodamine flow cytometric test or DHR if CGD is suspected and especially if the genetic test is performed first and is negative. So just in general, these functional tests that are available can be complementary to genetic testing and can be especially useful to help resolve variants of uncertain significance. And you gotta be careful getting me started talking about testing because I've got lots of things to talk about. So one last one that I really wanted to mention is familial testing. So at Mayo, we do offer this with a test code FMTT. And after testing the patient, if a disease-causing variant happens to be identified, it can be really helpful to test other family members for the same variant. So it could be useful if you needed to diagnose other family members that have similar clinical presentation or for family planning to identify family members who might carry a recessive condition. Or in addition, if we do find a variant of uncertain significance, so that's a variant that we can't really classify, we don't really understand what it means for that patient, in addition to the functional tests that I already mentioned, when they're available, familial testing can also be helpful to resolve whether the variant is benign or disease-causing. So if you test other family members that have disease and they have the variant, 
and family members who don't have disease, don't have the variant, that can be extremely helpful. Wow, Dr. Martin, I'm sure our audience would love to hear you continue talking, but those are all the questions that I have. And I want to say I'm grateful for your time and our audience will be grateful for your time as well. Thank you so much. Well, thanks so much for having me and having the opportunity to talk about this exciting test. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday.